I am going to record this simply because I'm going to go very fast. And there'll be stuff you go, oh, and you'll want to listen to again. So it'll be on the website hopefully by the end of uh, this evening. So as I said at the beginning, what I'm going to do is hopefully give you a bit of more of a systematic understanding, a structural kind of understanding of how the Psalms uh, fit together within the whole book um, of themselves. So the little books within the bigger book of the Psalms and the whole book of the Bible as well. Essentially, it's like an instruction manual to show how it works. Next week, I'm going to take one theme which goes through the book of Psalms. It's obviously close to my heart. That is, I'm going to pick up a phrase which goes through the Psalms a lot. That is to sing a new song and show how that theme goes the whole way through the Bible, ending up in two occasions in Revelation chapter 5 and 14. So I'm going to show you how the Psalms point us forward to various things as well. I'll show you a bit of that today as well. So this week, more of a toolkit. And really, I don't want to, I'm going to be very aware that some of us will be, oh, well, I learned that, isn't that amazing? But I, we don't want that, do we? We want to go away to be able to read God's word, to enjoy it, to savour it, to be thrilled by it, to be spoken to through it. So that, it's a toolkit, but for that purpose. So I'm going to do it via top ten facts. And here we go. Let's begin. This firstly, uh, point one, is that they are songs. It's pretty obvious. It's a collection of songs given by God to be sung by God's people. They, literally, it comes from a Hebrew word, um, which means songs of praise. Um, and other words, from the word we get, psalms, comes from the Latin, which is psalmoi, and, um, sorry, psalmi, and then the Greek word psalmoi. So that's where we get the word psalms. And it means songs of praise. And traditionally, it would have been seen that just the priests would have sung the, the psalms. The, the congregation, you guys essentially there within the Old Covenant times, would have just responded with the various hallelujahs and amens at, at, at times that would have been appropriate. And we know actually from the Old Testament that um, many of the, psalm, the psalms and the songs within the temple would have been accompanied by musical instruments. Maybe not a chord piano and a guitar, but other instruments. And uh, we know that because we, when we look at 1 and 2 Chronicles, we see a number of references there to the psalms being sung accompanied by skilled musicians. Let me give you a couple of examples. 2 Chronicles 29, for example, says, He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed. We should perhaps try that next week. It would be quite cacophonous, but let's go for it. 1 Chronicles 15, Kenai, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing that was his responsibility because he was skillful at it. There's a whole bunch of other ones. You can look at 1 Chronicles 25, which kind of outlines the amount of kind of instruments. At one time, 40,000 trumpets at one point. I mean, can you imagine the sound that that would be? But it is all to accompany the songs uh, of the Psalms. Even the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about the temple music before its destruction. He's, he says this in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, book 8. He says... He also made 10,000 sacerdotal garments of fine linen with purple girdles for every priest. I'm not asking for any of that. 200,000 trumpets, 200,000 trumpets. Sorry, I got the number wrong. According to the command of Moses, also 200,000 garments of fine linen for the singers that were were, uh, the Levites. He made the musical instruments and such as were invented for the singing of hymns called Nabali and Sidri. That's uh, solstries and harps, basically, in our language which were made of electrum, which is the finest brass, 40,000 of them. 
It's extraordinary, just the, the scope and the size and the noise. It was absolutely wonderful. So firstly, the Psalms are songs to be sung by God's people, accompanied by skilled musicians. Secondly, there are 150 of them. It's pretty obvious as you look through uh, your Bibles. The book is a collection of individual Psalms, 150 in our Bibles. Interestingly, more in other um, traditions. So for example, the Eastern traditions, Greek Orthodox, would have more. Uh, not many more, but they would have more. The book of Psalms is divided into five sections, which we put down here. Why don't we just turn to the beginning, let's say the beginning of book five. So Psalm 107, just so you get the idea and know what you're looking out for when you go there. Psalm 107. And you'll see there, just added, this is an editorial adding. So it says book five and it shows Psalm 107 to 150. Now it's divided into these five sections. Each of those sections closes with a, uh, what's called a doxology or a benediction. That is a kind of a, a closing uh, song. These divisions are introduced by the final editors. And they kind of, many people would think that they imitate the five books of the Pentateuch. That is the five first books of the Bible, the Torah to the Jews. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. They, they're, they're seemingly set to mirror that kind of, uh, that structure. Now many believe that the individual Psalms were brought into a single collection much later on uh, than when many of them were written. That is in the second temple time, so that's 516 BC onwards. But why five books in a collection of 150 Psalms? Well everyone recognises that the whole collection has some kind of underlying structure, a big picture or a meta-narrative, you might say. Everyone recognises that. They seem to hold together in some way. The funny thing is, every scholar that's been you know, kind of big on the Psalms has tried to work out what that key is, and there's always too many anomalies to work in their model. And that is very interesting. Augustine, for example, early church father, great big mind, he said this, the sequence of the Psalms seems to me to contain the secret of a mighty mystery. But its meaning has not been revealed to me. It, no clue. I mean, he worked on this for years. No clue. But you know, something seems to hold them together. So it's a, it's a collection of 150 songs collected in five books. But no one essentially worked out how they're collected together. No one agrees on that, basically, and how they hold together. Third point, longest book. Psalms, or uh, you might hear, hear the phrase, the Psalter, which is the, another way of saying the whole collection of the Psalms. It's the longest book in the whole Bible. And, and the numbering of Psalms, again, differs in different traditions. So some people would lump uh, two Psalms together that we would count as, as two. Okay, so they put them as one. Psalm 41, 42, for example, as being probably the most well-known one for that. So some have 149, some have 151, some have 150. They were assembled over a period of as long as 800 years. Some would say that, many would say that Psalm 29 is the oldest Psalm. But most of them come from a period of, we've been looking at in the Bible overview, if you don't know what it is, you can look at it when you get home, but it's described as a post-exile period, a post-exilic period. Because it's, it's referring many of the Psalms of the temple worship of the people of Judah, that is the southern kingdom. Now if you don't know what it is, don't worry, we can talk about it later. But that's the main period by which most of them have been written. So it's the longest book. It also holds the longest chapter, point four. 
Psalm 119. Why don't we just flick to that for a moment? It's in book five. We'll be looking at this uh, more in time. You'll see there, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Psalms, but also the longest chapter in the whole Bible. It has 176 verses, more verses than actually 14 Old Testament books in their entirety, more verses than 17 New Testament books in their entirety. It's uh, 176 verses. And it's divided into, you'll see on Psalm 119, it's divided into little sections with uh, little Hebrew letters above them, spelt out in the English. That they're called stanzas or verses, as we might know in our songs that we sing today. Okay? Now, each stanza is, uh, begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And with each stanza, each of the eight lines or verses in our Bibles... Um, starts with that letter. So if you look in verse 1, Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, um, although it doesn't work out in our translation because our first lines begin with blessed, blessed, they, you, oh, then, I, I. In the Hebrew translation, every line within that stanza would begin with that letter. Do we get it? Well, you get the idea. Suddenly, it's slightly lost. That is what you call an acrostic. Okay, And as we look at Psalm 119 later, you'll get the idea. I've put an acrostic here for you. Now, this is two, there's two ways you can have an acrostic. You can either have, here's my acrostic, and he lives in Willow Park. Everything begins with A. This is a stanza of A. Although he enjoys jazz music, alone is he within his family in that pursuit. Abstract art is not his thing, but Ali's friend thinks it's great. There you go. So there's an acrostic, you get the idea. But in the Hebrew alphabet, let's get rid of that because it's embarrassing. Um, (laughs) Central, though, to the fact of Psalm 119 is the fact that the name of the the Lord, that is Yahweh, appears as more often as you can possibly imagine. It is there either as uh, written the Lord or as a synonym, as something like that, something that represents that. God is central. And that's why it is such a significant chapter, so significant that in some, for example, Eastern monasteries, still today, they read it every day, all 176 verses in their midnight um, service. Should we start? No, I'm only joking. Every night. And that is why next year, although we're going to be looking at book five this summer, I'm going to miss out Psalm 119. And next summer, we're going to spend seven weeks looking at that alone. Okay, Because it's so important and we think it would be very helpful for us to do that. Fifthly then, this is where I'm going to push you a little bit in the structures and the tools. So we get to point five, multiple structures, multiple tools. Here's an important point. Psalms are not songs as you would think of songs. Okay, Uh, They predate the conventions of Western musical traditions. So when you think of singing... Not that many of you do very often, but when you do think of singing, you think of the melody line first, don't you? That is the tune that you sing along to in the car or on your iPod and so on. You sing along to the tune. That's the main thing that you focus on, your heart and mind. But the Psalms, they're far less concerned with that. Hence why we don't have the tunes. We have the words, but not the tunes. They don't engage... Uh, in the same way with the melodies that we would do. Rather, they do engage with ideas 
Uh, sorry, and they also don't engage with the sense of rhythm and meter that, that our songs do. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Speaker Lord, we just sang, was in a 4-4 a four, four rhythm. So it's, it goes, it's, Speaker 1, 2, 3, 4. And everything's very, very stable like that. Or you have a 6-8 rhythm, which is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, you're that, like that. You're the word of God, the Father. You get the idea. Okay, so Psalms aren't necessarily as focused in on that, or, or that's not the main uh, kind of thing behind them, the melody or the rhythm, as they would be with our songs. Some qualities of the Psalms are completely lost, though, in transla- uh, translation. I'll give you an example. Alliteration is used loads and loads and loads of times. We have alliteration in our prayers before meals, um, so we always have a beautiful breakfast, we have a delicious dinner, we have a scrummy supper. Um, you know, it's, it's those kind of things. So that's what alliteration is. You know what it is. Alliteration is pretty much lost in most of the translation, unfortunately. But it's a literary device used again and again. The other one um, that you might not have recognised, but you'll know it, uh, paranomasia, which is basically a pun or a play on words. The writers uh, of the Psalms are using these again and again and again. We'll try and point them out as the weeks go on. Uh, but again, we miss them in our translations, which is unfortunate but we'll try and point, point some out. Also, acrostics, we've seen those in Psalm 119, the use of kind of AAA at the beginning, but also it might just follow a linear pattern, so A, B, C, D, and so on. The acrostics are used again and again. And the reason that these uh, literary devices are often missed is because the, the language of the Psalms, is, the use of the language is so sparing, so terse, you might say. That doesn't mean that you can suddenly say, oh, right, I'm going to put my Bible down, I'm never going to look at these again, uh, because you know, it's no point. Rather, it just, it's, it's helpful for us to know that the Psalms aren't following normal conventions, as we would know them, but they are for them. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, it, we need to be thinking that, as, we, you know, as you read the Financial Times, you don't read that in the same way that you read a novel or a travel guide or the works of Shakespeare. And likewise, we need to understand as we come to this uh, ancient literature, this different genre, that we need to read it in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that is expected of it and not impose the way that we would read or listen to a song on it. Imagery is another commonly used tool. So the water and the deep are very often used as pictures of death, for example, in the Psalms. Israel is depicted as a vine, which you'll know from John's Gospel, is picked up again later on. Let me give you an example from high culture, if I can, of imagery, just to get, illustrate this if I can. Very high culture, the classic song by Take That, called Could It Be Magic? Just, this is how high culture we get in this church. Every time I'm near you, whirling like a cyclone in my mind. Isn't that beautiful imagery? <laughs> you know what it means. You're, you're right on the level with that, aren't you? And it goes on, it's even better. You're my lifeline, angel of my lifetime. You get the idea, it's imagery, isn't it? You're pushing the boundaries of it, creating an image, but you know exactly what it means. The Psalms do this again and again. Another major concept we see in the Psalms is known as parallelism. Now, you'll probably think, we'll get to this one. This, is, this will really kind of blow your mind in some ways. And this is as a, a sense or meaning rhythm rather than a sound rhythm. The sound rhythm that we have in our, our songs would be of, of kind of a rhythm of like one, two, three, four, and so on. But psalms, different to that, would have a, a meaning rhythm 
That is, let me show you three different patterns that this can happen. There's one called synonymous parallelism. And basically this is the thought that the first line um, is, is, is then repeated in the second line. There's a parallel thought repeated straight after. Let me show you. Let's turn to Psalm 103 if we can. Psalm 103 and verse 7. It's a very simple kind of, and it, this again is used again and again and again. Uh, verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses. And then to, to reiterate that, the same thought is repeated, his acts to the people of Israel. You see how that is synonymous? They're just repeating the same thing. It's a parallel kind of way. Now, you may have heard of this. I'm not going to go into this in huge detail. But an expanded form of that is, is known as something known as a, a chiasm or a ring structure or some people liken it to an onion. That is, you have sentence one, which will say the same, um, and then there'll be a sentence down here, let's say sentence eight, which would say the same thing. Sentence two would then say the same thing as sentence seven. Sentence three would say the same sentence, that one. And then the middle sentence, it will all be pointing to that major point in the center. That's called a chiasm, has a kind of ring structure. I didn't put it out, but you get the idea. And that's an expanded form, if you like, of synonymous Parallelism. Now, in biblical texts, these structures are used again and again and again. You may, as you read through them, pick up and say, well, haven't I heard that phrase before? Yes, you probably did, eight verses before. And then you look back and you think, oh, well, I, have I just heard that phrase or that kind, of, that kind of argument before? Yes, I did, just those verses before. Look to the centre and you might find something, the major point of that psalm, that section... It can really bring a psalm alive when you, when you spot those kind of things. Now, don't think this is just in the Bible. This happens in all kind of ancient literature. So, for example, the Odyssey, the Iliad by Homer. Again, all the, all the way through that kind of literature. So that's synthetic. His antithetics is basically the opposite. Two sentences, they have roughly the opposite thoughts. Let's go back to Psalm 1. That's easy to find. Go right back to the beginning. And verse 6. Again, it's two sentences, but they're saying the opposite things this time. Antithetic parallelism. So the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but, opposite, the way of the wicked will perish. Okay? That's very simple. Let's move on. Now, last one is synthetic parallelism. With this, often what you get is one line is then followed by another line, which kind of makes the point even stronger. It intensifies the point, if you like. Turn to um, Psalm 95, verse 3. Psalm 95, verse 3. This is a beautiful one. But you'll see how the, the, the second line basically moves forward what is said in the first line. So the Lord is a great God. Is that not enough? No. He's a great king above all gods. Do you get the idea? It builds on the first uh, one. Let's move on there, that's a bit, um, let's go on to point six, and here we have multiple authorship. Now, many of you will know that the majority of the Psalms are attributed to David, King David. 73, in fact, of the 150 within the Psalms are attributed to David. But, um, if you think that's not, uh, you know, that's a lot, Elsewhere, that we found, for example, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found uh, uh, in the middle of last century, uh, it was found that actually 
in many, many of the songs that we found within those Jewish traditions, uh, that David was attributed to over three and a half thousand songs. Uh, so 73, just a little snippet of what he uh, actually wrote. Now, the interesting thing is that not only have you got the 73 attributed to David within the Psalms, but you've also got nine others that are attributed to David outside of the Psalms. That is, within the New Testament. So if you just turn to Acts 4, now this is going to take a while. Someone shout out the number, page number when you get there. Acts chapter 4. 1095. Acts chapter 4 and verse 25. Why don't you just have a read down there? (coughs) Through to verse 26. So you'll see there that Luke, the writer of Acts... Um, uh, speaks of that you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant our father David and then he quotes from Psalm 2 you'll see in the footnote there that it's from Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 now that's not attributed to David in the Psalms but here it is attributed to David um, so it's recognised as a Davidic Psalm as it would be called in the New Testament And there are eight other occurrences of that. Let's go to other authors as well. Um, Most of them can be seen in the superscriptions, uh, which are the little kind of introductory sentences uh, right at the top of the Psalms. Now, unlike... Let's just turn to Psalm 108 if we can. Sorry, back to Psalm 108. Because this is the first superscription that we see uh, within uh, Book 5 of the Psalms. So if you see the number there, Psalm 108... And then it says underneath it, a song, a psalm of David. Now, in our Bible translations, there are little kind of paragraph headings, aren't they? They are not the infallible word of God. They have been added by the Bible translators of 1989 for this translation you've got here. Now, these uh, little bits uh, in front of the superscriptions underneath the number of Psalm 108 are the Bible. They have always been there. They are scripture. So a song, a psalm of David, they are superscriptions. And there are many other superscriptions addressed. um, They don't just give us the authorship. They also give direction as well. So you'll see some that says they're addressed to the leader or to the choir master. Some give kind of say, well, to the stringed instruments. This psalm's to be sung with stringed instruments. This psalm's to be sung according to the lilies, you see, which is probably a tune. One of the psalms outside of the book of Psalms, one of the songs outside in Habakkuk chapter 3, is given a particular named piece of music. That's to Shigianoth. Now, we don't have that piece of music still, but that's the one it's to be sung to. Other superscriptions will tell us the authors. So Asaph was written 12, the sons of Korah, um, 11, and Solomon uh, two. Let's go to point seven, though. There are multiple types. Now, part of the brilliance, this is where it begins to apply very much to our hearts, I think. Part of the brilliance of the book of Psalms is the range of topics, the range of themes, the range of expressions of our hearts that they give voice to. Athanasius in the early church, uh, 
uh, a theologian there, a bishop of Alexandria, said the Bible books are like a garden which grows one special kind of fruit. That is, he's saying, uh, a Bible book has kind of one big theme, and it's, it, that's its special fruit. By contrast, he says, the Psalter is a garden which, besides its special fruit, grows also those of all the rest. That is, it has so many themes. The point is this huge variety. So you'll, you'll recognise that many of the Psalms are praise-orientated. We've heard one read out, Psalm 145. Uh, we've also heard um, in our prayers in Garrett, so Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord, love endures forever, and so on. And they speak about the character, don't they? And the work of God, the Lord. You can turn to many of those. I haven't got time. I was going to get pointed to a few there. But the function of them is to encourage one another corporately in our praise of our God who is great and glorious. And it, in a sense, it's to redirect our hearts, our affections to God for what he has done. Other Psalms, there are laments. They are concentrated mainly in, in book three, in the central section, but they do occur elsewhere. Let's turn, if we can, to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. Here's a lament, verse 3. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with bread of tears. You have made them uh, drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us the, a source of contention to our neighbours and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Oh, they, that's just one stanza, one verse, if you like, of a lament. And a lament is simply a crying out to God in distress, in need, longing for restoration. And interestingly enough, we have very few uh, laments, songs of lament, in contemporary church singing. And I think that speaks volumes about how we view ourselves, our sin, our need for restoration. But I think it also speaks volumes about how we view God today and his holiness and his justice. I guess he's become, as I've said a number of times before, like a benevolent grandfather rather than a loving father who will, in his love, discipline his children. Laments, though difficult to sing, are such an important song to have in our repertoire of a church. They convey the reality of life and the whole Christian experience. That's laments. Let's go to imprecatory psalms. The Latin uh, word imprecate, imprecate, or imbra, I can't say it, there we go, um, it basically means to invoke harm upon uh, someone. There's a whole bunch of them, Psalm 5, 10, 17, 35, 58, 59, and so on, going the whole way through to Psalm 140. But these are by far the most difficult to understand and to sing, especially in our current society. Why? Well, because these psalms call upon the sovereignty of God to deal with, to bring justice upon the enemies of God. 
Psalm 109. Let's just turn to that very quickly if we can. Psalm 109. O God, whom I praise, verse 1 this is, do not remain silent for the wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. And if you go down to verse 6, it's the, the nature of it, if you like. Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Now, these songs are generally psalms. are generally considered not to be sung as individuals, but rather in the, as a corporate gathering. Songs, uh, I get, they are songs that, I guess, help us rest in the knowledge that God is sovereign, that he is a judge, that he does rule. And that looks pretty messy sometimes. What we learn from these implicatory psalms is that it is a good thing to pray and to sing that one day hardened hearts will meet their justice, a fair and a right justice. We don't sing in, in any sense with glee, but that God will be sovereign and just. We know, of course, that that will be an utterly fair justice. And we also know, let us not be arrogant, but very, very humbled by them, that we are also all deserving of that justice. That every single one of us, but for the grace of God and the work of Christ, ought to receive that right and fair justice from God. There's also prophetic elements in Psalms. So, for example, in 2 Samuel 23, it shows us that David's work is inspired by the Spirit. And he explains there about how singing about the truths of God, and he's singing about those truths, stuff that he hasn't fully grasped at that point, that that kind of point us forward, prophetically directing us forward, if you like. So um, 2 Samuel uh, 23 says this, These are the last words of David's, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of a man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, his word was on my tongue, to speak more than I knew, essentially. So famously, for example, Psalm 22, you can have a look at it later if you want. You'll know it, the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want, and so on. It... It's blatantly pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? In fact, if you didn't know the kind of the historical kind of plotting of the Bible, you would think that the writer of that song of Psalm 22 was actually there at the crucifixion of Christ. Such is the detail. But David had written that hundreds and hundreds of years before, in a prophetic manner, with the Spirit of God inspiring those words. Eighthly, the use of Psalms in the New Testament... We must motor on now. Following on from the prophetic use of the Psalms, let's see how that, that, is, that is then worked out in the New Testament. So, for example, taking that Psalm 22, Matthew in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27, Jesus quotes from that, doesn't he? On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, God has inspired David to put those, uh, in writing the words a thousand years before, but they are cried out by Jesus. He uses them and then they're recorded in the New Testament. He is the fulfilment of them in that way. So we see fulfilment of prophecy. And that is one clear way in which we see the Psalms being employed by the New Testament writers. In total, in the New Testament, the Psalms are quoted a minimum of 79 times, alluded to 300 or more times. It is the most quoted book 
in the whole of the New Testament. So it'd be good that we had to get a proper handle on it, I think. The New Testament writer's usage of the Psalms affirms both the relevance of this collection and its status as God's words. The way that Jesus uses the Psalms, the way that Paul uses the Psalms, and the writers of the Hebrews, for example, it's often that they're sort of commenting on it. They're, they're affirming it. They're saying, this is God's word, his inspired word. Nicely then, the use uh, within church history. Interestingly, after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the Jews actually stopped using instruments. So they were so kind of solemn in that sense. Uh, and the worship and the singing of psalms, much like they did during the exile. But history shows us that actually influenced the early church as well. And the Christians, perhaps because of the large number of Jewish converts, they didn't use instruments probably until the 3rd century. Now psalms, whether read or sung, accompanied or chanted, they've remained part of, uh, if you like, what we do as a church to reflect our worship of God. As individual and corporate life of the church, they've been an integral part. And they can be seen pre-Reformation, that's pre-1500s, but more significantly uh, for us, is they take on a massive role after the Reformation and uh, with the, within the singing of the church. Now that's, that brings us today to a tenthly and very quickly to the use in the contemporary church. Some churches, for example, still hold to the idea of exclusive psalmody. If you ever go on holiday in the, um, in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland, uh, I've got a few smiles on the back there, um, if you go up the, into the West Highlands, I used to work up in Glencoe quite often, if you go to a church there, there literally would be, I might do this for you next week, there is a roll um, of uh, felt with an, a number of tuning forks in it. And the cantor, the leader of the singing, would unroll the tuning fork, he'd look on the music and see that this song is in C. He'd take out the note, he'd hit it, and he'd get his note, and he would begin singing that psalm in that note, with that note. And that still occurs in a number of churches, certainly on the West Highlands and up into the, into the Outer Hebrides as well. Uh, that they believe that they do that, the exclusive psalmody, the only singing psalms, and they believe it must be unaccompanied. I was going to sing Bless the Lord on my soul, we haven't got time with the tuning fork, but we're not going to go there. And that can be traced back to the Reformation. Why? Because John Calvin wrote this, and along with many other things. When, he, when we have looked thoroughly everywhere and searched high and low, we shall find no better songs nor more appropriate to the purpose than the Psalms of David, which the Holy Spirit made and spoke through him. There are many churches and many traditions which still only sing the Psalms. They are the songs given by God in his inspired word. Nothing else will do, essentially. But Calvin went beyond that, and he also helped us implement the singing of Psalms by vigorously promoting his own book called the Genevan Psalter. And basically, that book became the grandfather of all old hymn books that you might have grown up with. Uh, as we've gone through church history. Now we may not sing um, unaccompanied psalms here at Christchurch Hillsfield, but many of our most loved hymns are translation or transliterations of psalms, taking sections of psalms, adaptations of psalms, imagery developing themes from psalms and so on. I wonder if you can just think of a few examples right now. 
The Lord's my shepherd. We used to sing that quite a bit. We don't sing it so much more. Psalm 22. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Yeah? Psalm 103. A load of the words taken from that song are straight from Psalm 103. My soul finds rest in God alone. The Stu Town and Aaron Keyes song. Well, that's Psalm 62, verse 1 to 6, pretty much, word by word. An old one, but a, quite a, a, a well-known one. Great is the Lord and most worthy in praise. Psalm 48, Psalm 145, as we heard read earlier. So we've had ten facts, if you like, about Psalms. I hope it's given you a kind of a structure. I hope it gets our heads into this most magnificent collection of songs. So in summary, very quickly, 150 chapters, organised into five book sections. We spent the last four years going over book one, book two, book three, book four, and now we're going to be going through book five. And next summer, Psalm 119, over seven weeks. Psalm 146 to 150, we're going to take two weeks in that little section, is essentially the summary of the whole collection. And they are the, if you like, to use a musical term, the crescendo of praise, the high point of praise. But is that it? Well, I really, really hope not. You have in your hands the voice of your heart and your relationship with each other and the voice of your relationship with God, essentially. Some days you will read and you will need a psalm of praise to realign your affections to God. So you pull them out and you get to Psalm 145 or 48. And you read, you know, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. You need that, don't you, on some days? To praise God. C.S. Lewis said, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. The Psalms are here to help us praise, even if you don't want to. But they also give us a voice in the tears and the struggles, assurance and hope when things seem so dark and lost. Psalm 121. I read this to Colin Roberts, our brother, who I think we think has got cancer and pretty bad. And I was at St. George's yesterday with him and I read this to him. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's a voice in the tears as well as the joy and the praise. Psalms point out our sin as well. We need them. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. They show us our need for forgiveness. They point us to the one that offers us our forgiveness. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 22. These are songs that we should want to sing and next week, what I'm going to try to do is, is, is to show us why singing psalms is so, so important and so potentially life-changing as well, as they point us towards so much more. Let's pray as we close.
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We pray that that may be so. Amen.